0: Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Carolyn Ford to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity. I'm Carolyn Ford here with Eric Trexler. Good morning, Eric.
1: Good afternoon, Carolyn. We're actually doing an afternoon with a Pacific guest this this week.
0: Well, it's still morning for me and oh, for Ceros. Right. It's an afternoon for you though. So good afternoon.
1: Well, good afternoon to the two of you and good morning also. <laughs> good morning from Pacific Time. Yes.
0: Yeah, so today we're here talking about privacy with NBC investigative reporter and author Sarus Barabar. Good morning, Sarus.
2: Good morning. How are you guys? I'm great. Great.
0: So, Saru's privacy, man. I, your book. I'm not gonna lie. It caused some angst for me as I read it. Like I would get angry, and then.
1: <laughs> I, Hold on. Did. Introduce the book for the listeners. Okay, all right. Caroline. All right. Let I me know introduce it. All right,
0: right. Okay. So, so privacy has been an uh, an issue really since the founding of our country, and today's tech has made it even more complex. Your book. Habeas Data Privacy versus the Rise of Surveillance Tech takes a look at 50 years of American privacy law and how it's become inadequate for today's surveillance technology. So now, there we go, there's the book. And I'm telling you, Eric, it was it was a week for me to read this book of there was a lot of angst going on. And let me let me just get to why.
1: A lot of detail.
0: Well, there's a lot of detail, but also Have you ever heard somebody say, I have nothing to hide. I know my data is being collected. I'm okay with that. Have you ever heard that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm roughly in that category, except uh, everybody has things to hide.
0: Okay, well, so Ceruse immediately addresses this point of view and why maybe we shouldn't be okay with that and what a slippery slope it is. So Ceruse, I want to talk about you... Disclose uh, how much data license plate readers collected on you, and it's yep. it's an impressive amount for a law-abiding citizen. Like it's kind of crazy. So, talk about that for a minute, Sarus, and why why we should care.
2: Sure. I mean, I think it's just something that we all should bear in mind, whether or not you feel like you have something to hide or not, with regard to license plate readers uh, specifically. You know, I think this is a type of technology that is commonplace. It exists now, uh, in America, uh, many cities, big and small and in between, uh, have them. Uh, and if you don't know if your county sheriff or your municipality, uh, has, or your state law enforcement agency has license plate readers, um, it might be worthwhile to, to see, to, to find out, to check with, uh, local activist groups, or just simply ask your local police department, Hey, do you, do you folks have, uh, license plate readers? And if you do, Um, You know, you might consider asking some questions like how many cars are they mounted on or are they fixed? You know, are they mounted in certain points over certain streets in certain areas? Um, How long do you keep that data for? License plate readers are an incredible uh, technology that can capture every single license plate that moves or is not moving right on any given street uh, up to 60 plates per second, which is kind of insane. Um, So, you know, wherever you you folks are right now. Uh, Imagine if a a police car was driving down the street, it would be capturing every car parked, moving in practically any orientation and would capture that plate. And it would compare that plate number uh, against a known database, uh, what police often call a hot list. This is cars that are wanted or stolen for some some reason, might be an Amber Alert, uh, might be something else. But in the overwhelming majority of cases in every city that i've ever looked at it's always been under 1% of so-called hits um so if you if you talk to police and you ask them why this is useful they say oh this is great because we get to you know bring bring back people stolen cars who doesn't want that we get to catch bad guys who doesn't want that uh you know we get to do things that help us do our jobs more efficiently and that that all sounds great um but the problem is is that typically uh these license plate readers are capturing the overwhelming majority of people, you and me, and presumably everyone was watching or listening to this, uh, who are just regular, boring, tax-paying citizens who are doing nothing, who are, you know, right. if you're like me, uh, I'm going to get a beer and I'm going to a baseball game and I'm going to get tacos. And, and that's what I do. Um, You know, and and as I point out in the book, right, like there are lots of perfectly legal activities that all of us engage in that we may not necessarily want there to be kind of a government record of doing. Um, That could be a religious activity, that could be a political activity, that could be, uh, you know, going to a medical facility of some kind, that could be going to an abortion clinic, that could be, you know, a whole slew of things that are totally legal and and fine, uh, but that you may not necessarily want your local law enforcement agency to have a record of the fact that they saw your car doing that thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it's about where do you draw the line? Like, scan my plates 500 times a day. I could care less. Now, if you take that information of where I was and when I was there and you sell it to, you know, I I don't know, Amazon or somebody else, I I start to care. And I think for each individual citizen, they've got a different line in a different place. I mean, Caroline, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming you'd be very different from me in in some ways.
0: I I think I probably would. Um, So the, the unforeseen consequences of the massive amount of data being stored. So I was shocked to hear how much they had stored on you, Sarus. Like, I can't even remember how many.
2: <laughs> I think in, in the in the in the book and in the in the story that you're looking at, it. I think it was dozens of times. I think it was fifty times or something like that. Yeah, if I'm and, not mistaken. and then
0: it's stored over. You know,
2: at that time, of- Oakland, the Oakland Police Department, which is what I think you're referring to, at that time, the Oakland Police Department had no formal retention policy, which effectively meant that they were keeping this data indefinitely. Uh, And they captured my car, you know, in front of my house, they captured it in front of a sushi place, they captured it in, you know, in various places. And again, by itself, that sounds relatively innocuous, but taken as a whole, uh, absent any kind of watchdog uh, from either the city agency itself or another, you know, people being mindful of what it means when you collect that volume of data and that type of granular data. Um, You know, many of us, a lot of us pre-pandemic, uh, you know, we we park our cars maybe in front of our homes and we drive to our workplaces or maybe we we commute to to visit relatives or we have kind of a regular pattern of behavior. And given enough data points, you can very clearly establish uh, where somebody lives or where somebody works or where somebody, uh, you know, uh, attends religious services or engages in other kinds of regular activity uh, that would illuminate, uh, you know, a pattern of behavior in somebody.
0: Well, and then the legality of collecting that kind of data, the so what, why does it matter to me, was really driven home when you talked about the Smith case and what the Smith case ultimately led to. That one was a shocker. So can you talk about the Smith case and and then I'll let you reveal what what happened because of that?
2: Sure. So I, I believe what you're referring to is a, is a case from the late 1970s that's called Smith versus Maryland. Um, yes. And this is a case that lives with us today because it created um, it created a, a legal phrase, a legal standard uh, that, that we still live with. That's called the third party doctrine. And basically what that means is that, you know, you and I having this conversation, uh, I guess I guess there's three of you. So in this case, there'd be four parties. Right. But um but just for simplicity, I'm treating both of you guys as as a single as a single party. Uh, so me, <laughs> so 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 I'll be the first party. You folks collectively are the second party. The third party in this conversation is whatever platform. What is this? Remotely.fm uh, is you know the platform that we're using to mediate this conversation. Uh, you know, pre video conferencing, that would have been whatever you know phone service that you use, AT and T, Verizon, wh- whatever um right but the there's the the entity that is mediating that conversation is is the third party right so while we are having this conversation we are disclosing to in this case remotely.fm uh the fact that we are having this conversation right um we are allowing this company this entity this third party to absorb uh you know i don't know what remotely.fm's privacy policies are so maybe they're recording this entire thing i have no idea but we're at bare minimum right They know that, you know, one entity and another entity had a conversation on a particular day at a particular time. Right. At minimum, they know that. And so when in Smith versus Maryland, this is obviously long before video conferencing. uh, This involves a guy um, who is uh, basically ends up mugging a woman on her doorstep at midnight in Baltimore in the 1970s. And um, he decides that that is not enough creepy behavior Uh, He decides also to make harassing phone calls to this lady uh, at this time and does so from pay phones relatively nearby. And eventually, uh, you know, the the police are able to find him and eventually they're able to determine that, yes, he made the the phone calls to this woman to to harass her. And they were able to get the records of the calls, three days of calls that he made uh, to this woman to show that, in fact, he had done this. And ultimately, when it was challenged up to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ultimately found that there was no, and this is, we can get into this also, there was no reasonable expectation of privacy in the fact that he had dialed these numbers because of this thing that the Supreme Court decided is called the third party document. He had already disclosed, in effect, that he had made the calls to the phone company. So the phone company could share that information. Exactly. Uh and the practical effects of that decision from decades ago means that according to uh according to you know government lawyers, uh uh I mean we're we're getting a little bit a little bit dated now, but but this is what enabled the what was called the Section 215 metadata program that was revealed by Edward Snowden uh from seven years ago. Um the the government lawyers at the time that basically signed off on that basically said, okay. Because the Supreme Court has said that nobody that this that this guy Smith in the 70s doesn't have a privacy interest over three days of phone calls for just him and himself. Then it must also be true that nobody has any privacy interest over any calls anywhere ever. Uh, and so the NSA said, yep, it's totally fine to capture all the metadata on all Americans, phone calls, phone records. Uh, so this is the the metadata who called what number called what number for how long and when. Um for years and years and years and years, um, that program now still exists, albeit in a different form. The government doesn't collect it directly; it resides with the the telcos, the the, the phone companies, and the government is able to obtain it with a court order, um, which is a little bit different than how it used to be, uh, you know, before Snowden. But um, but yeah, so that that is the that is the the, the standard. That's the the legal test, if you will, uh, that we still live with today. But and what you're is- saying
1: is, if I if I put medical records in Dropbox, mm-hmm. Dropbox being the third party, probably yep. Comcast, my cable modem, I'm, I'm sharing it over that, and I could probably think of a few other things. Yep. Third party rule says eh, they can share it out, even though their privacy policies say they would not. Technically, they could.
2: Right. I mean, they could, and, and it's right, and it's important to bear in mind that uh, right. So companies can say. Um, you know, we are like what, what I think most mainstream companies do, big companies that you've heard of Google, Dropbox, et cetera, right. They will say, we will keep your data private. We will do X, Y, and Z for you absent a court order, right. Unless a court compels us to do a thing. This um, is what our policy is. This is what we're doing here to our policy. Right. Right. And there are companies that, that take it right. There's a, I'm sure there's this phrase that you've heard of before, which is called privacy by design, right. Where there are products and services that exist in the world, um, uh, I'm thinking in in particular of the um, the encrypted messaging app Signal, right? So Signal uh, is a is an encrypted messaging app that is free to use. It's open source. anybody can download it. It's very easy to use. Um, the company that makes Signal uh, is a company called Open Whisper Systems, and Open Whisper Systems has designed Signal in a very particular way. One, they say that they do not keep hardly any information about its their users, right? Um, so when the government has gone to gone to open whisper systems and says, hey, we want to know everything that you have on user X. They yeah. say, well, we can only tell you whether a given phone number is an actual signal number, one. And two, we can tell you the last time that that number was used on our network. That's it. That's all right. that we can tell you. We Sergeant, have no other information.
1: Yeah, Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's
2: Heroes. I know nothing. And they don't. <laughs> Right, and it's true. It's true, right? They have made a deliberate choice to, to design their product in such a way such that they have no information to give. Um, contrast that, for example, with WhatsApp, right? Another very popular messaging app. Um, WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook, um, uh, has a feature where, uh, by default, WhatsApp will backup messages to uh, iCloud or another kind of cloud backup service. The idea being that if you are switching phones or you're switching devices, uh, you won't lose your messages, right? If my phone, if I go drop my phone in the ocean right now, I will lose all my signal messages on my phone um, if, I, if I have any that I care about. Uh, there's no backup option at all. They have chosen not to have that. Whereas WhatsApp, right? And we, and we learned this, if you guys remember the case of Paul Manafort, right? Paul Manafort was mm-hmm. sending messages all over the place on WhatsApp thinking that he was encrypted, but guess what? His phone was backing up to iCloud and the government got his messages. Um, he was so, encrypted, though. Sure, but encrypted only means like... <laughs> it didn't like, matter. It, it didn't matter. That's what
1: I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> and and I think, you know, being a cybersecurity podcast, the, the other challenge you have is even if these companies don't disclose the information, if they get hacked, your information could be taken.
2: Yeah, that's certainly true. I mean, right, there's there's obviously a trade-off uh, between convenience and security and privacy, uh, as, yeah. as you well know, right? I, I often say it's super easy to live a very private life. Uh, the way you do that is you throw all your digital devices into the nearest body of water. You move to the remote, most remote mountain cabin you can find and you never talk to anybody ever again. Um, <laughs> obviously you're safe. Uh, right. <laughs> obviously that's very hard. I think for most of us, because you know, we like cute cat videos on the internet and we like uh, you know, uh, using our phones for various things and we like living a normal, modern life. Uh, and so, so that's really difficult to, to um, uh, you know, to give up convenience uh, for privacy for a lot of people. So what do you think,
1: Carolyn? What do well, you think about the privacy versus access issue?
0: Well, you'll like this, Eric. So in the book, Saru says, security versus privacy, security always wins. Well, in government, we say security versus mission, mission always wins. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would even say in just just in business many times. Yeah,
0: mission always wins, right? They'll find a way around yeah. the security. And
1: or they'll they'll this, skip it because they have to get something done.
0: Right. And I and I realized that the reason security is gonna win over privacy is because security is the mission, right? It's the cops needing to catch the bad guy. So they're gonna do whatever they need to. And if they're violating some privacy laws, well, so what? But also where the conflict came for me with the book was like this, the Smith case. Mm -hmm. He was a creeper. He needed to go to jail. (laughs) But the precedence of his case is what made it possible for the NSA to collect data on all of us. So the question is. Um. Well, you already said it, Eric. Where do we draw the line?
1: Exactly. I mean, if they're scanning the your guys, license you plates, got- do you care? You're clean.
0: Exactly. And if they're taking my temperature, do I care? Maybe.
1: Now, what if they get your know. medical records and find something out that you don't want to share? That's yeah, the line for so- you. But ha- how as a society do we draw the line? I, I go back to... Sarish, so you talk about, you know, until the 21st century, most of our activities were relatively private. Let's go back to like the 17th, 18th century. You lived in a small village or town. Everybody mm-hmm. knew your business.
2: I mean, yeah, it was mm-hmm. just,
1: I mean, I remember growing up, my grandmother would talk about, you know, so-and-so's doing this, so and so is doing that. You go back a couple hundred more years and you're just in that small village or town everybody knows your, your business. Are we not going back to that where we've already been? Or now, way, you know my, now, you know, now, you know, my blood type, you know, I think I have that it's, a, I think that it's a
2: different, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a difference of scale, right? Like if you live in a small town in the 16th century, sure. Yeah. Uh, you live in a small town and maybe, maybe 50 people know what Everything you've been about doing, you. but that's very different than, than that information being accessible to hundreds or thousands or, or potentially millions of people, uh, you know, at, at incredibly fast speeds. Right. Um, and that information is, you know, in the world that we live in now, that information is indelible as anybody who has ever tried to get rid of something from the internet about them, be it an embarrassing photo or, uh, whatever. It's almost impossible to do that. Right. And, and whereas in the 16th century, people's memories uh, fade, right? And people die, right? Like the, the, the dumb thing that you did uh, when you were, were 15 in 1683 is long forgotten, right? But hundreds of years in the future, probably a lot of the dumb things that I've said on Twitter will still exist. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> and that's the point, Eric. Just like we, when we talked about the right to be forgotten, is those things die, even if it's printed in a newspaper. I mean, finding that newspaper is is really hard. But now you get big data and you start painting this massive oh, it's picture. It's simple now. Yeah.
1: So Sarus, what's what do we do? I mean, privacy law hasn't kept up. How do we figure out when everybody has a different line, a location, starting point for that line? And it could even change, right? My line for this could change today. To I, I don't want you scanning my license plate. Sure, I don't want you looking at my internet search.
2: Yeah, I, and I get that. I get that. It's a hard. It's a really hard and thorny problem. Uh, is the is the very short version of that? Um, I would say the you know the thing to remember uh, um, this phrase that I'm sure you both are familiar with, which is um, the the phrase threat modeling. Right? What are you afraid of? What is it that you that is the worst case scenario? You know, if if it is known by the your local police department. That you, you know, drive to church every Sunday. Does that bother you? If it doesn't, then you're probably not going to do anything. But it might. Well, bo- maybe, maybe maybe it, it does. bothers you maybe after 9
0: 11, right? Maybe it if does. You're, if you're going
2: to a mosque, that right. might bother you. It, it might. It to might. Have somebody and so you. you you have to kind of run through these kind of calculations in your mind of like, okay, if it bothers me that I don't want anybody to know that I'm driving to my religious uh, institution. Um, Maybe I'm going to ride my bike instead. Maybe I'm going to take the subway or the bus or some other, or maybe I'm, you know, but maybe I'm going to walk. But you're right? talking personal
1: action there. Yes. I, I'm looking at it from, uh, so let's assume you don't want people to monitor the fact that you're going to the, mos- the mosque on, on, on you know, once a week. Okay. But we're catching, for every license plate we scan, we're catching one out of a thousand criminals. And I you like I,
2: I would venture that that's a very tie, that that's an exaggeration. Either. You're probably right. It's probably one out of fifty
1: thousand or a hundred. But but let's assume there's a, there's that trade off. Mm-hmm. How do we as a society make that decision? Because it's it's everybody has their own lines. So how do you
2: how sure. do you coalesce society around
1: a common agreeable?
2: Sure. Spot? So I think one of the ways that we deal with this here in Oakland, where I live, is something that um and I don't mean to skip ahead to the ending of my own book, but. Um, but I think that the, uh, here in Oakland, we have something called the Oakland Privacy Advisory Commission. It's a government body, um, that acts at the city level, the municipal level, uh, that acts just like any other, you know, city commission. Uh, Most cities have, you know, planning and building commissions, for example, right? There's a group of people who are experts in, in building and construction, and they decide, uh, you know, is it appropriate for you to add a story onto your house or to, to remodel your kitchen or, or whatever the case may be, right? They have expertise in building and construction. Awesome. These people uh, are experts or, or try to be experts in privacy. And they require, uh, under city law, uh, for city government entities that are doing something or acquiring something, uh, license plate readers, for example, that might impinge on people's privacy. Um, and they require that the entity that wants to get that thing, the police department usually, but not always. Um, another example might be the, the sanitation department, wants to acquire um surveillance cameras so they can capture or license plate readers so they can capture people who are uh, illegally dumping trash in in certain areas. I don't know if that's an issue where you live, but that's an issue where I live here. People are dumping, you know, couches and mattresses and all kinds of stuff that they're not supposed to be doing. Um okay. so they go to the commission and they say, "Hey, here's the thing that we want. Here's why we want it. Here's the policy that we're going to develop that says, okay, these 10 people have access under these circumstances" And we're keeping the data for this amount of time and we're deleting it after this amount of time and we're sharing it with these other agencies under these circumstances. And there's kind of a framework and a rule book for how that works, because in many, as far as I know, Oakland is the only city in America that has this, uh, that has a city agency that is up front, right? Trying to get ahead of, like you were saying, that the law doesn't catch up, right? As far as I know, Oakland is the only city that, that does this ahead of time. Um, and they require that city, that agencies come back every year, essentially, and do an audit and say, Hey, okay, we, we have 30 license plate readers and we caught a hundred bad guys and, uh, you know, and that's great. And we captured a bazillion license plates and we deleted them all after two months because we figured out that they were useless. Right. And here's our, here's our rule. And it's very predictable. Right. Um, Okay. so I think, I think yeah, that is about- a, I think that is a good solution, um, I'm sure it it has flaws and and there may be disagreement uh, in the case of license plate readers specifically over what is an appropriate length of time to keep that data, whether it's one day or one week or one year. And I think reasonable people could disagree over what the appropriate length of time is. Um, But to say, well, we're just going to keep it forever and we're not going to have a policy, I think is kind of a a recipe or could be a recipe for disaster. Yes, Well, and
0: this goes back to a lot of themes that we've talked about, Eric, just transparency communication, cooperation. But my question for you, Sarus, is Michael Hayden agrees with you. I agree with Michael Hayden. He says that we need congressional oversight. We need PAC at a national level. We kind of have that, but it's under-resourced. It's floundered. Can you talk about the commission that we have in place at a national level? And and maybe what your thoughts are, on how we get it to a pack level to what Oakland's doing.
2: Sure. So um, yeah, we have at the national level we have something called the privacy, uh, the U.S. Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, uh, which has the unfortunate uh, acronym of PCLOB. I-, I didn't name it. That's just what it's called. Um, and PCLOB, um, you know, is this is this entity that is largely concerned with uh, overseeing um, the Federal government's uh, surveillance powers. Right, uh, famously, uh, they issued their their first report in January 2014 um, that examined uh, this NSA metadata program that I mentioned earlier, called uh, Section 215, um, and they basically found uh, that it was unconstitutional. And you know that that report is an interesting document in, in its own right. But I think we need to also be mindful of. Things that not only are the are federal agencies like the NSA, what they're doing, but also what individual, um, you know, police departments, sheriff's departments, state law enforcement agencies, tribal law enforcement agencies are doing. Um, You know, we live in a in a uh, in a federalist uh, country, right? Uh, County sheriffs, uh, police departments, state state governments have a lot of power that is not necessarily uh, overseen or controlled by. The U.S. Department of Justice, right? Uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, I don't believe, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, much less a, a constitutional lawyer, um, I don't, I, as far as I understand it, you know, the, the federal government doesn't have the ability to say to each and every individual state or police department, uh, okay, you have to do this kind of, you know, evaluation ahead of time before you acquire surveillance technology or whatever, um, they can certainly encourage it. Right. There are there are ways that the government can encourage uh, cities to do certain things or, or take certain actions. Um, this has been done, for example, in um, with regard to, uh, you know, uh, racial uh, uh, systemic racism and, and racial injustice that has happened in many cities and where cities are doing things improperly. Right. And the Department of Justice regularly does uh, kind of investigations. And oftentimes they come up with what are called consent decrees. Uh, basically settlements, uh, agreements between the U.S. Department of Justice and, you know, the Oakland Police Department or the Chicago Police Department or or, or whatever. Right. Um, I have not I'm not aware of any agreement like that between the federal government and a, a local police department with regard to surveillance technology. Um, it's it seems to be in this country a little bit easier, for better or worse, uh, to regulate the what the government is doing. That's, of course, baked into our own constitution. Um, there's an inherent skepticism about what the government itself is doing. Um, but, of course, as you mentioned uh, before, um, there's all kinds of other issues to worry about with regard to what private companies are doing.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I, mean, I think if you look at, like, body cameras, I, I don't think they can federally, you know, mandate body cameras everywhere.
2: Federal as, – as I understand it, the federal government could um, mandate it for federal agencies, but I don't believe – of course, believe, of course. Yeah, I don't believe that the federal government, my understanding is that the federal government itself does not have the authority to mandate to every city and every county in the country to right. say, okay, you must have body cameras now. You, you may remember when Obama, you know, in the Obama administration, um, you know, after uh, things uh, went awry in Ferguson, to put it extremely mildly, um, there was a push by the federal government to, to encourage body cameras. And, and that was something that President Obama talked about at the time. And a number of departments did do that, um, you know, uh, and and still now, uh, you know, more and more departments are 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 continuing to do that. Um, I think the jury's out as to whether or not that has made a substantive difference in terms of police uh, brutality and misconduct. Um, but nevertheless, uh, I think that that's something that that is that is you know interesting to continue looking at.
1: Right, but from a privacy perspective, they can suggest, they can fund, or they can take back funding, but they can't mandate. That's my understanding. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. It's such a complex issue. Like I said, it it gives me angst, but I think it's really good that we're talking about it. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it here for today. Um, But I encourage our listeners to, to read Sarusa's book and to think about these issues and what they mean to you.
1: Carolyn, will you be riding the bike to the grocery store or you're driving now?
0: Yeah, I walk with a hoodie.
2: And- <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny you say that because one of the things facial recognition. Well, there, right? There's right? that too. Uh, one of the things that um, I there was a line <laughs> in. So Ed, Edward Snowden, who is still in Russia after however many years it's been now, uh, seven years, said in an interview recently that it turns out that in Russia, given that it's cold and that he's constantly wearing hats and scarves and stuff around him, that. Um, he that it's easier just given the clothes that you need to wear to be outside in the wintertime. Uh, it's a little bit easier to and also he's a celebrity to, you know, try to stay more anonymous, just given the kind of coverings that you need to wear, which I thought was sort of funny.
1: I'd rather live in a Caribbean island and just <laughs> run, run around in my bathing suit. <laughs>
0: yeah, There you go. All right. Well, thank you so much, Saru's, for being with us.
1: Tonight. My pleasure. Thanks so much Great for the time. discussion. Thanks, Saru's. Thank yeah. you.
0: And thank you, listeners. Uh, go go smash that like button and give us a review and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store.